Well, good morning, Christ City Church. My name is Brian Franklin. I want to thank Pastor Justin, the other pastors, staff, elders at Christ City for welcoming me into this space. And today we're here to talk about racial reconciliation and justice. And if we can, I want to frame our conversation, our movement towards racial reconciliation and justice through the lens of two questions. Who is God and who are we? Who is God? And as a result, who are we God's followers? And to introduce you to where I come from with this conversation, I want to start with a story. It's a story that revolves around a personal question of who am I as an individual? A story that traces back to fourth grade with a seemingly simple question from my fourth grade teacher. You're African-American, aren't you, Brian? Caught completely off guard and mortified at the fact that me as a shy fourth grader who had just come from speech lessons because I still learned how to properly pronounce my words was now the center of attention of the entire class. Face flush, not really knowing what to say or even what African-American meant, I nervously nodded, just hoping more than anything that the attention would leave me. When I got out of school that day, I rushed home and I asked my mom, Mom, am I African-American? It was my first conscious interaction with race in our society. My first interaction or first exposure to society's ongoing effort to place me as a biracial black and white man into an either or black or white category. Who am I? Is this question that led me to go to college in New Jersey because I got sick and tired of the constant microaggressions, questions like, what are you, Brian, that I experienced growing up in the mostly white suburb of Denver, Colorado? Who am I? It's this question that led me to move to Durban, South Africa for two years, where I experienced in starker terms than ever before one of the world's greatest economic dichotomies across racial lines between black and white people. And it was ironically this setting, a setting where black and white lived right next to each other but couldn't have been further apart, that God answered in some finality that my identity racially was not an either or, but a both and. That I was black and white, modeled after God's son, who was both God and man. In fourth grade, when my teacher asked that question, I never could have imagined that South Africa would be the place to reach some sort of answer. But God could have. And God did. You see, in 2010, I got dragged to church. And it was here in the midst of weekly Sunday services, weekly small groups, that I began to sense that there could be some sort of answer to this question of who am I? And on January 23rd, 2011, just about 10 years ago, I was baptized and received the truth that I was God's child. But it wasn't until 2014 that I began to deeply wrestle with who this God I was worshiping was. Reeling from the process of the immense injustice I was living in the midst of in South Africa, combined with the killings of Michael Brown, and Tamir Rice, and Eric Gardner. I found myself on the floor in my apartment in a mixture of rage and terror and confusion, 
saying to God, if this is what your good news looks like, then I need a bigger God than this. Who are you, God, to allow this injustice to happen? Looking back, I'm just glad a a strike of lightning or an earthquake didn't uh, hit the place. No, God did answer in any momentous way, but God did answer. And in the years since, God has brought me to a place of remarkable clarity about who I am and why I'm here. I'm a child of God. I'm a husband of Candace Maloney Franklin and a recent father of Zuri Ellie Maloney Franklin. I'm both black and white, created for the purpose of being a community builder and people developer to cross societal divides and expose people to a different way of seeing and being, but ultimately to join God and God's work towards restoring and redeeming the world and God's work towards racial reconciliation and justice. And this clarity began with the rage-filled question of who are you, God? Who is God? Now, if I can, let me give a few examples of who God has shown God's self to be in my life. God is the God who, like Andrea said last week, is always present with me, with us. The God who deeply loves us. In fact, the Bible says that God is love. But equally important to this conversation, at least to me, is the idea that God is also a God of righteousness and of justice. We see these qualities most clearly in Jesus Christ, the God-man, who chose to come as a baby, born into poverty, to a colonized people, who challenged one of the most powerful empires with the attribute of love. Christ, acutely aware that the brokenness of humanity had led to some being treated as human and others being treated as less than, came as a quote-unquote less than. And when he came, he invited all to follow him, but decided to build his church on a group of women and men who had all been written off by society, knowing that if they put their trust in him, a group of diverse people sold out on loving God and loving one another could overcome their differences, build a community that incorporated God's character of righteousness and justice, and change the world. This is the God I've come to know. Now let's be realistic. None of us could ever describe the fullness of God. That's not the point of this activity. I believe the point is best summed up by Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. She says, who we believe God to be is important because what we believe about God will tell us what we believe about people. And what we believe about people will tell us what kind of communities and societies we believe we should strive to create. You see, to be Christian is to orient one's entire life around this God, to worship God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our soul, and all of our strength. It is in our deep knowing of God that our work of of justice and reconciliation will flow out of. Because in knowing God, we can't help to live for what God calls us to. We can't help but to live for God's 
kingdom, a kingdom where every human being is honored for being an image bearer of the one true God, where every human being has the right to self-actualization and self-determination and to live into their God-given potential, not being held back by the evils of racism, materialism, militarism, sexism, and inequality. It's a kingdom where together as individuals we form a community called the church and live into the high calling of doing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you have never done this, let me issue a challenge. Sit down and try to answer this question, who is God? And then do it again and again. As you do, try and move beyond the things you've been told by other people. And look to God's word. Meet with God in prayer. Ask God to show you. And let's see if together, as we sit and reflect and allow God to write God's word in our hearts, that we might just get to know him a little bit better. Who is God? And secondly, who are we? And how do we evidence who we are as God's followers? through our form, formational practices. Now, in my reflection on this question, I want to get practical. I've shaped these practices as one uh, being for folks of color and another being for white folks. Doing so as a result of learnings from my own personal journey with God, lived experience, ministry. Um, but I'd be reminiscent if I didn't say that I think these practices apply for, for everyone. Let me start with my folks of color. One, I recognize that there is incredible diversity and beauty under this moniker of people of color. I don't mean to limit that in any way. Um, what I do, what I do mean to do is, or I think, at the very least, you know, we can all identify uh, with what it's like to be non-white in a white dominant society. Um, and so, to my brothers and sisters of color. Ah, it's been a year, hasn't it? <laughs> it has been a year. You know, a frequent refrain and prayer of mine over the last 10 or so months have been the words of the psalmist. Psalm 13. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? Will you forget your people forever? That was 2020. And then January 6th happened. I was on a call uh, the Friday after January 6th, and I felt like uh, one of the other ladies on the call summed it up perfectly. She said, I felt like, I feel like January 6th, on top of the darkness of 2020, was white supremacy trying to take my spirit from me. And that really resonated with me. Trying to take my spirit from me. You know, that's, a, that's an idea that theologian and pastor Howard Thurman spoke to. He said Jesus, as a member of an oppressed people group, knew that this was the goal of oppression. Not necessarily to take one's life, but to take one's spirit. Because as Thurman said, Jesus knew that anyone who permits another to determine the quality of his inner life gives into the hands of that other the keys to their destiny. That's why Thurman issued a simply profound call and one I will echo today. 
the practice I have for, for you all, for us, people of color, is this. Find the voice of the genuine. Find the voice of the genuine inside of you. Or in other words, find the voice of the divine inside of you. Not too dissimilar from Andrea's uh, remarks about Thurman last week where she talked about centering down. I promise that wasn't planned. Notice, though, what Thurman called it, the genuine. He called us to find the voice of the genuine. Why? Well, probably because he knew that folks who are not white in America were going to continue to face a chorus of voices that said to be white is right, that you are other, that you do not belong here, and that you are less than. Or in other words, he knew that this country would continue to throw ingenuine, unholy, sinful voices at us. So Thurman called Dr. Martin Luther King. He called elders of the civil rights leaders to find the voice that matters most inside of them, to find the voice of the genuine, to find the voice that says, you are my dearly loved child with whom I am well pleased, and to prioritize that voice above all else, above the voices of an attempted white insurrection on the Capitol above the police violence against our communities, above daily microaggressions, and above the 400-year history of oppression. You know, for me personally, finding this voice of the genuine, prioritizing this voice, has started by slowing down. Learning how to quiet my body and mind into a state of presence. And then finding practices that help me not only be present, but be present with God. One of these practices was what's called Ignatian Imaginative Prayer. Ignatian Imaginative Prayer. Through it, you choose a scene from the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with people and ask the Holy Spirit to help you put yourself in that scene. Reading the passage, you try to imagine what it would be like to be there with Jesus, what he'd look like. Who else would be there with you? What you'd smell, what you'd feel, what you'd hear. You know, author David Benner says that shared experience is the core of any friendship and spirit-guided imaginative prayer on the life of Jesus provides this opportunity with our Lord and Savior, the opportunity for shared experience with Jesus. And so I invite you to try it out. Another one for me has been intentionally seeking joy each and every day. Spending time with my wife, with my daughter, with a group of black men who have been rocks for me over the last month. Finding joy wherever I can. Beloved, I have no greater hope for you, for each of us as a community, that individually and collectively we would find this genuine divine voice and prioritize it. And I believe, like Thurman did, that if we do prioritize that voice, God's voice. We will have everything we need to face 2021. Now let me turn to my fellow white brothers and sisters. You know, I heard a quote midway through 2020 that challenged me to my core. And it was this. Reconciliation for people of color is so difficult because white comfort trumps black liberation. It's according to author Resma Monacan. White comfort trumps, and if I can expand the definition, people of color's liberation. 
Pastor Rich kind of builds on this idea when he says, our level of offendability often reveals our level of maturity. And so white folks, we need to build up our level of maturity. And to do so, I'm calling us to holy curiosity. A holy curiosity. And this idea of a holy curiosity comes from God's call to the nation of Israel in Leviticus. I am the Lord your God. You are to be holy as I am holy. And to start, this holiness, all holiness, starts by worshiping no other God but Yahweh. Which includes repenting of any idols. And so this first piece of curiosity is a curiosity around our worship of whiteness. We need to get curious of how we as white people affirm or take advantage of whiteness. Now when I say whiteness, I don't mean the act of being white. But as Pastor Rich describes, a destructive ideology that normalizes and absolutizes so-called white values, experiences, and history. Whiteness creates hierarchy. It puts a premium on white life. It is non-biblical. And it rejects the very foundation of who God is. Now, I think it's easy to, to focus on whiteness on a macro level. And white, we do see whiteness play out on a macro level, right? Whiteness blames immigrants for changing our culture and the lack of jobs in our country. And in response, locks children in cages to try to create enough fear to stop immigration. Whiteness blames Muslims for invading our pure Christian country, placing a ban on Muslim-majority countries from entering the land. Whiteness blames. Whiteness blames. Whiteness blames. Whiteness blames. Whiteness does not self-reflect. It does not self-examine. But don't mistake whiteness solely for those grand macro ideas. Whiteness is also when you give up pronouncing someone's name because it's too difficult or is from a different culture. Whiteness is also where your level of respect for someone is based on the amount of money they make or their title or their academic credentials. To get personal, whiteness for me was when I saw a young black man walking through my neighborhood and immediately followed him with my eyes because I could tell he wasn't from this neighborhood. And my subconscious belief was that he was suspicious. You know, in John 3, 19, Jesus is speaking to a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he talks about the fact that light has come into the world, but that people love darkness so much they stayed out of the light. You see, Jesus isn't asking us to fix our own darkness, but simply to bring that darkness to him, to bring that darkness into the light. And whiteness is a form of darkness that we have clinged to for far too long. Let us seek by the power of the Holy Spirit and grounded in who God is to drive out each day through self-examination, confession, repentance, and lament, whiteness. And let us not seek only to do that on an individual level, but on a communal level, in each of our spheres of influence, shouting from the rooftops to our fellow brothers and sisters that we found something so much greater. We need to drive. We need to get curious about whiteness. Next, we need to get. We need a holy curiosity about our own family and history and culture. 
What does it mean to be white in America outside of whiteness? What does it mean to be white in America outside of whiteness? You know, Pastor Rich in his section on remembering mentions a tool called the genogram. And I was actually forced to do this exercise, exercise through a course I took last semester. And what started out as a begrudgingly filling out a detailed family tree type task turned into me hearing stories I never before heard about my family. In one example, I learned the unique role faith played in my life before I was ever even born. You see, my grandmother's family was from Germany and moved to Ohio in the 1900s. Devout Methodist, my grandmother, every summer would go to a Bible camp in Colorado. It was these camps that drove an interest for her about Colorado and led her to attend uh, the University of Colorado, where she met my grandfather, where they later married and gave birth to three children, the oldest of which was Lisa Schwartz, now Lisa Schwartz Franklin, my mother. This was one of the few stories I heard, and there are many more for me to come, uh, more to come and more to unpack, but it helped me to start to uncover, start to unpack, and to ground me in what it meant to be part of the Schwartz family. Beyond our German-Irish heritage, who we were as a people. And that's the type of culture building we need, because until we understand where we come from and build our own culture, we'll always view culture as other. And so white people, I'm calling us to a holy curiosity. Let us step into a holy curiosity about whiteness and about our own cultural background and heritage. Now, as I end, I'd like to end with a story. You know, on November 12, 2021, my daughter, Zuri Ellie Maloney Franklin, was born. Zuri was born to an Afro-Caribbean black immigrant mother in the middle of a global pandemic. A reminder, if you ask me, that God is a God of life. She has in her blood Ketitian, Chinese, Black American, Irish, German, and probably some other ancestry as well. A mixed background that bears some striking similarity to our new Vice President, Kamala Harris. Baby Zuri, or Baby Z, as I call her, uh, is like most babies, I'm told, in the fact that she has a complicated relationship with sleep, i.e. she doesn't really like it. Um, You know, and so at times I'll let her sleep on my chest, especially in the middle of the night, to give mom a break so she can hopefully get some sleep. And when she's there, I often find her spreading her arms out wide, clinging to me on each side, giving me as much of a bear hug that a 10-week-old can muster. And it's a picture that brings me absolute joy, but also a picture that prompts a challenging question. What am I clinging to? You know, there were times in 2020 that the last thing I felt like clinging to was an idea of reconciliation. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. And if it is, I can't blame you. And I'm not asking you to take my word for it being possible. But if I can, let me give you one encouragement. Take time. Sit down with God. 
Because I trust if you do that, you will experience the God that, as it says in Romans, gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The God who calls into being things that were not. Beloved, I've never seen justice and righteousness. I've never seen, sorry, justice and, and reconciliation. But God has. And God, the one who brought light to the world, promises that darkness will not have the right, the last word. So Christ City, let us be a people who follow the example of, of my young baby Zuri and cling to what is most important. Let us cling to God. Let us be a people that seek to get to know God better each and every day, individually and communally. Let us be a people that prioritizes God's divine voice above all else. Let us be a people not afraid to examine the darkness within us, to bring that darkness to God, especially the darkness of whiteness that has plagued our land for 400 years. Let us be a people that in so doing full, get to fully experience the grace and mercy that is Jesus Christ. It is my belief that when we do that, we will be well on our way in this movement towards racial reconciliation and justice. Let us pray. Lord God, in times like the ones we've experienced over the last 12 months, I am so thankful for your word. Your word says that in the beginning, God, And in the end, there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. That the old order will pass away. Lord, in these in-between times, help us cling to you. Help us prioritize your voice above any other voice. Help us not run out of shame or guilt from our darkness, but help us leave that darkness at the cross. Knowing that when we do, you don't condemn us, Lord, but look at us with love, receive us with grace and mercy, and transform us into being more and more like you. Would you come, Lord Jesus, and have your way in us? It is in your name that we pray. Amen.